I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Indie Football Podcast. I'm your host Luke Brown and joining me in the studio this week we have feature writer Petushan Ahantaraja and reporters Lawrence Osler and Jack Rathborn. This week, we're going to be talking all things Arsenal. Were the club right to sack Unai Emery? Should they have ever appointed him in the first place? And who do they appoint next? But before all that, we're going to run through this week's Premier League results brought to you by Amazon.com. Uh, Lawrence, let's start with you. Uh, what have you made of Amazon's coverage this week? And have you been impressed? Um, i th- not especially impressed. I thought it was quite an understated start to life um, with Amazon Prime. I thought... There wasn't it wasn't a huge song and dance made of it, was there? Really, um, obviously, quite understated. Yeah, starting in the middle of the season, it's a bit of a trial, I suppose. Um, and it wasn't a kind of big. It didn't feel like a big branding exercise that I thought it would be. Um, but I was pleased with a few things. I, I enjoyed the um, seeing Jim Rosenthal back on our screens. Great man. Um, Peter Drury's commentary is always welcome. Um, and. That is about it. That's about the only positives I can come up I th- with. I thought you were going to talk about the um, the fact you could watch the games without commentary, which I know everyone was kind of raving about, but I mean, it, would you actually do that? It feels a bit kind of psychotic to me. I, I didn't try it. I don't know if anyone did try it. Um, I, I've heard mixed reviews, but I heard it's quite, it's quite kind of, yeah, kind of quite gritty. It's just a bit nuts, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I suppose you'd feel a bit lost without it. Um, I would without without Peter Drury's soothing voice. <laughs> um, so yeah, I didn't actually try it, but yeah, I thought overall it was it was good. And I, obviously, it's just, I suppose the new experience is the fact that you can you've got all these games going on at once, and you can kind of pick and choose where you want to be. You could yeah. be watching one game and flick over to another. You could be bored with one. Um, you can hear about what's going on in another, and because the stream is slightly delayed, you might actually get to it before <laughs> and see the goal that you've heard about on Twitter. Um, and that was one of the kind of complaints, wasn't it, that, that, that the streams were a little bit delayed. Um, so I thought it was, it's a good, it was overall a good experience and a good idea of kind of what life might be like watching football in a few years' time. Fish, did, did it feel to you like the event maybe it should have been? Because obviously when Sky Sports and when BT Sport launched their Premier League coverage, there was this huge, huge splash which contrasts quite a lot with how Amazon went about things and how kind of understated it was and, you know, how their kind of brand identity wasn't pushed to the fore. I actually think they played it really well, considering that, you know, people fundamentally don't like change, do they? Especially, you know, over here in the UK and especially when it comes to consuming football. So I actually thought because, you know, because we've had, you know, so many, so many games so far, you know, what, 14 games coming into this, that it did kind of make sense to be as kind of understated as possible. There would already be the jarring effect of of having to get Amazon Prime, whether that's a fire stick, whether that's a subscription. You know, obviously bear in mind that 50, I think 15 million people had it anyway before mm. whatever, um, you know, however many more signed up because of the rush. Um, so I thought they did, did quite a smart thing in, in terms of like just trying to slip seamlessly into like, you know, into the consciousness of football fans in this country. And 
you know, what we were talking about the 73 or so, you know, 73 hires in terms of commentators, pundits and um, analysts. And I suppose the one thing you realise is because we consume so much football, none of them were particularly out of the blue. Perhaps Nigel de Jong is someone who I probably haven't seen a lot of, but, you know, it was great to see Jim Rosenthal back again. But when you think about people like Peter Jury and... Ali McCoy is commentating. They actually commentate on Premier League on the Premier League every week. They yeah. just do so for for different feeds. Obviously, like at the PLP, they've got so many games that they're actually already built to do that. There's Premier League productions on in Stockley Park. They don't just ruin football for everyone with VAR. <laughs> they also, you know, put it onto the rest of the world. So I thought it was really interesting because th- that infrastructure has always always been there, and I think it's the first time that fans in this country have actually seen it. Because when you go overseas, you know, I spend a bit of time in the US and. It's it's brilliant. Like on a Saturday, you've got the morning kickoff which starts at seven a.m. You've got the three o'clock kickoffs that start at ten. Then you've got the evening kickoff at midday, and you get to watch every single game. And it did seem a little bit of a frustration that you know you could do it everywhere else apart from the UK. Now I understand the reasons for that, and it's because the rights are are so lucrative, and the teams have such a strong say in in how much is it published. For example, you know, teams can't put out highlights on their Twitter feed until seventy-two hours mm. after full time of that game. Which is why often you'll see like a Thursday where you know teams will tweet out um, what happened on the weekend. Throwback for, Thursday, kind of yeah, thing. exactly. It seems odd to me. Yeah, it does. Throwback Thursday used to last Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the um, but yeah, I thought all in all they they played it quite well, and I I think the no commentary thing was quite interesting because people were were talking that up as a huge deal. I th- I th- I'm with you. I think it's a bit of a nonsense. Definitely, way more people showed off on Twitter about the fact that that option was there. Than yeah, kind yeah, of exactly. It. And I bet they didn't even listen to it because it's just I don't want to hear kind of you know. Uh, like Jeffrey ra- should look yeah. grunting, you know. I Random just, man in the crowd. Yeah, of. yeah, exactly. It's the same people who say they prefer a nil-nil to a 5-5. Five five, yeah. It sounds like a good thing and sounds like a, an interesting thing to say, but I think it's nonsense. It was like it was a little bit like when you watched Alpha Papa, the Alan Partridge film, <laughs> and it was an Alan pa- a long Alan Partridge episode, but with no canned laughter. <laughs> yeah, now, Alan Partridge yeah, doesn't yeah. rely on canned laughter, but it was still quite jarring. Um, but yeah, all in all, I thought they they did a pretty good job, and I, I do kind of hope it's the future. Actually, was that the most? I'm trying to think. Was that the most innovative thing they did? Because I remember when BT Sport started, and it was what did they do? They moved the scoreboard to the bottom right hand. Oh corner. my god, yeah, that was huge. And then, and then they did a thing as well where they kind of had replays, but also showed the game going on in an inset yeah. box in the corner. And I think obviously Amazon Prime streaming all games at the same time is quite innovative in itself, but. Other than the no commentator thing, yeah, that, that, was there anything that is else? the most revolutionary thing, right? Which is the fact that they showed every game and, and the stats. I think during the game, you oh, the Opta the, match the, predictor, the split, the split screen. So, what, was the, what were the stats? Sorry, so you had a win probability, which I think for the hardcore fan felt like a bit of an insult. But I think for people who maybe haven't seen a team more than a couple of times in the last six months or a year, I think it's quite nice to see what their predicament is at that that stage. I think the just a, a general brief overview of the stats is quite nice to sort of, if you've just got in from work and you, you've missed the start of a game, you can get a, get a consensus of what's happened to that point. And I think the, the scheduling is nice. I think you don't need to reinvent the wheel. I think just by changing up the format, you have the, the 7.30 kickoffs, the 8.15. I understand for actual stadium going fans, it's a bit of a headache to, to go to a game at quarter past eight. Um, or kickoff time, but I think to give to give fans like a three-hour window where they can just watch solid football, I think is quite it's quite a nice little feature, and I think this might be something that they, I don't know, where they can persuade the Premier League to to have this maybe at a weekend. Maybe they could they could have 
an entire book of fixtures over a Sunday-Monday split to, to avoid that blackout period on a, on a Saturday. I think that might be quite intriguing to a, a fan at home. I'm not, not sure what you guys think, think of that. I think it was, it was a good thing for fans of clubs outside the top six as well mm-hmm. because you know usually if Southampton, for example, on TV they're probably getting spanked by Manchester City yeah. or Liverpool. But the fact that their game against Norwich was televised and fans could watch them actually win yeah. is quite is quite a nice thing. Well, I think the internet can really help those lesser-known clubs because it would give the fans the option of tuning in. Like you said, the goal show might sort of provide an advert for each and every game. And if you see that that game is, is taking off and mm. they're putting on a show, maybe you are going to ditch the, the dreary game at Old Trafford or or at Anfield and, and, and opt for a bit more of a an interesting game with players that you might not necessarily have, have heard of. I think it's it's sort of tapping into that model that the American sports have, uh, the NFL sort of advertising themselves as a league rather than a collection of yeah. five really world-class teams and, and the rest. I think the Premier League do need to do a better job of sort of marketing themselves as the league rather than what it, what was the the top four and is now the top five slash six? Yeah. Uh, I think this is going to be a step towards sort of making the smaller teams feel more inclusive and more welcome. Perhaps I'm outing myself as a huge gammon, but I mean, I thought the Opta result predictor was bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but I mean, that's always the case with those kind of predictors, though. So like, obviously, it's obviously in cricket, um, in cricket, they've got QuickViz, which is a similar mm. thing. But the only reason they have that is. As a uh, as a bit of extra fun because it's often you know with stats companies it's, it's often the worst thing they do but just the easiest con- to consume mm. because it's such a, it's it's basically an amalgamation of all the other bits of data they have uh, which when you delve into that it's really interesting um, so I didn't actually see the stat side of it Jack but was there for example could you see in the last five minutes you know where for example possession was or average positions of players and stuff like that well you had just very generic stats like corners shots shots on target possession uh so it, it wasn't as far as i'm aware it wasn't so sort of minute for detail of the stats it wasn't a, a crash course in opta but it was it was kind of the the basics to to sort of i don't know yeah to sort of gr- grasp your interest a little bit more beneath like what you were seeing you could you could sort of add to the picture i think and i think you're right in terms of a quick visit it's it's almost like people are slightly offended by by that but then they might have asked their friends in the in the pub at that stage I don't know when Everton were two goals down at Anfield mm. oh what are the odds on on Everton to to pull this off pull off a comeback you might ask that question but then because it was it was portrayed in a as a percentage rather than like decimals it was just the fact that before United Spurs they gave both teams a 35% chance of winning <laughs> 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 which just felt like a kind of inherently rather like just a guess. That yeah. Makes, that, makes sense. that makes sense though, doesn't it? Like, you know, with 30 per, 30% chance of the draw. With cricket, it feels like cr- those sort of statistics work much better for cricket because there are so many more stats to kind of work with and kind of integrate. And yet before a football game, what are you really working with? You know, United are at home. They're, they were what, like two points behind Spurs in the league? Oh, all right, like we'll call it even. It just felt like a completely pointless sort of guess. But what, what, would, the, what would they have been on the, say, on the betting exchanges? They probably would have been like around evens, wouldn't they? I suppose so. I suppose so. But then why not just do it with the with the odds? Yeah, I, I, well, I suppose they could, but then they would be 
I was going to say they'd be um, <laughs> encouraging betting, but <laughs> leave that to the adverts. You I don't know, like that in English football. <laughs> <laughs> it's a exactly sad that. indictment of football fans like fragile ego that they're not they can't take being told that their team's got a two percent chance of winning the game <laughs> it's like that's we it, don't want it? it on our screen that's it they would argue with numbers <laughs> yeah, <wouldn't they? laughs> yeah it's like just accept it should we move on to talk about some of the actual football um united obviously beat spurs 2-1 uh, before we get stuck into that let's hear what ollie gunner Solskjaer had to say after the match it's one of the best yeah definitely we've had spells against liverpool spells against chelsea leicester of course but to the first 40 minutes were excellent today but the reaction after they scored as well, I felt, was good start of second half. So that's it's always a concern because so many times we've this season been winning, gone into a draw and then stayed at a draw. But they never gave in, trusted themselves. And I think we deserve to win. Uh, so Vish, is there any hope that uh, United could potentially catch up with the top four now? I suppose all the hope rests in the... F- fate of other teams really I think the fact that Chelsea are in fourth and United are eight points behind them is while that gap is quite big we've seen from Chelsea even in the last week or so that they are quite an erratic team despite the fact that they absolutely deserve to be where they are so in that sense United have a chance but I just don't think they'll be able to stick together enough results I think the way they performed against um, Spurs I think Miguel tweeted something about this about how it either shows how much they want to fight for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer or how much they hate Mourinho. <laughs> and I think it's the latter because they were really kind of really on fire. I've not seen Fred have a better game in a, in a United shirt. Um, he was basically everywhere. Considering, you know, I don't think that was why he was bought in the first place. He wasn't exactly supposed to be someone who's going to run down and shut shut down different areas of the pitch. But he did that brilliantly on Wednesday night. Um and Rashford, yeah, had a, had a bit of a spring in his step, and I did, I did quite well in the last five minutes of the of the game, I suppose. Um, Solskjaer bringing on Luke Shaw in the 89th minute in front of Mourinho, and then giving Mourinho the old Mourinho pat on the head <laughs> as well, which was delicious. And I, I really did think he kind of, I, you know, Solskjaer is not a fool. He, I think he senses that the tide is very strongly against him, and that. A couple of results and he's done for. And I really think he threw a lot into that game yesterday because at the very least he could, that's something to take with him, you know, going forward. And to be fair, United have a decent record against against the, I suppose, the traditional top six. Obviously Spurs aren't there at the moment. Um, it's, just, it's just facing the other 14 teams that they tend to struggle. So, yeah, I mean, sorry, to go back to your original question, top four, yeah, potentially, um, but personally I don't see it. What do we think... Um Mourinho has kind of learned from his first four matches in charge because he's chopped and changed his team a little bit. I would suggest that maybe last night showed once again that Musa Sissoko and Harry Winks in a kind of central midfield pairing doesn't work. Um, there's questions about Vertonghen at left back. Lucas has started all of his games, I think, and yet been pulled off in most. So what, what, what do you think he's kind of learned there? I suppose, yeah, like you say, he's learned. Um, the Sissoko thing was quite clearly... Uh, experiment gone wrong um, I suppose he's learnt which players he can rely on it seems like Deli Ali is prepared to um, you know pull out all the stops to be a proper Mourinho forward um, Harry Kane still he didn't score last night but he seems to still be at it since Mourinho's joined so I suppose he's found which players he can rely on and perhaps he's discovering quite quickly which players he's not going to be able to rely on um, Christian Eriksen it sounds like he's still set to st- determined to leave um so i guess he's 
discovering a little bit more about his squad. Has he learned anything that perhaps he didn't know before? Probably not. Like he, he knew a lot about Tottenham's squad before. He talked a lot when he took the job about how he, he knew everything there was to know about Tottenham's players and that's why he took the job because he thought they were the, you know, the third best squad in the Premier League. So I don't think he's probably learned anything hugely new in that sense. Um, I think probably the, the result against United just was a reality check of where Tottenham are. You know, they're not... He hasn't been able to flick a switch and just turn them into a top four team. And the reality is they are going to have to slog it to to get into the top four. I probably I don't think they will. Um, so he's probably just had a bit of a yeah a, a kind of reminder of, of where Tottenham are at and that there are deep rooted problems still in the in the squad and in the club. I think we might have said this last week, but I feel like the Ben Davis injury, which you know obviously people haven't really kind of dwelt on because it's Ben Davis and who cares, but it's actually huge because Spurs look so defensively solid. Um, against West Ham to begin with. And if you play Davis, you can kind of go free at the back with Vertonghen and Ardvarod and let Aurier just do his thing on the wing. And now suddenly he's not playing and, yeah, they look really suspect at the back. I was quite surprised that he didn't do Vertonghen in that position because Vertonghen yeah. could also do that job of almost being that kind of auxiliary centre-back slash left-back and he didn't do that. I don't know if that's something that that was an option because he's got the players to do it, hasn't he, with Sanchez and Aldevirod. Yeah, and I'm not entirely sure he's convinced by Sanchez. Oh, right, Sanchez okay. hasn't like really kind of covered himself in oh, glory since right. since Mourinho's arrived. Um, moving on, Leicester beat Watford two 0 um, It looks like they're they're not going to fold, Jack. It looks like they might might actually kind of keep up that position in in the top four. Yeah, I think I think they have every chance because of the I don't know the 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 smooth nature of like the core group of players. They it's very similar to how Conte used Chelsea's squad at, um, in his title-winning season, and Rogers, if he gets a little bit of luck with with injuries, I think there's every chance they just they just stay where they are. They tread water a little bit, and they they, they could even fall back somewhat. And you look at sides like Tottenham, Man United, and Arsenal, and I mean, who who would confidently say they they can close the distance? I'm I'm not sure, especially with um, with Vardy in this form. I think um, you got Madison, Ayozi. Tielemans, there's so many goals in that team right now, and I think this is a team that has no fear in the big games either. So, Sorry. I think I think there's every chance that they stay right where they are. I think you're gonna you're gonna learn a lot when they play Liverpool and Man City back to back games, and that's where we'll we'll see whether it's a little bit more than just a top four challenge. While while we're with you, Rafa, just before we had to a break, you were at Stamford Bridge last night. Um, how mm. good are, are Chelsea looking, and and were they good value for their win? Uh, they're a very good value for the win against Aston Villa. Much better than the the performances, certainly against West Ham, but also against Valencia. And I think it, the key difference is Tammy Abraham is now the most important player for Chelsea. You you look at what he brings, especially inside the penalty area. He's one of the most unselfish players, I think. It, certainly among the, the biggest sides who, who lead their attack. Uh, he talked after the game last night about how at half-time he, he gave a pep talk to Mason Mount, who'd had a pretty inauspicious like three halves of football. Came came back out the second half, scored from a, a nice chest down from from Abraham and looked a totally different player. And that, that all came from Abraham promising him that if you stay within reach of me inside the box, I'll, I'll feed you. And so it proved. So, yeah, I think this is a team that can confidently stay inside the top four. And um, now they have a, a little bit of an alternative to the way they they played at the start of the season. It's not going to be quite as smooth and as and as easy on the eye. And um, I think they are going to look to mix it up, be a little bit more 
route one to Abraham, the way he can hold off defenders now. I mean, for someone who's only 22, the way he, he outmuscled Tyron Mings at times, I think that was a, a really good battle and it's promising for England too. I've gotten the script, uh, a bullet point to talk about Everton, but in all likelihood, by the time this has gone out, Marco Silva will probably be sacked, so let's just skip that. Um, let's go to a break. Uh, when we get back, we're going to be talking all things Arsenal and all things Emery. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. Right, Arsenal. And before we hear from you guys, here's how a few different managers from around the country reacted to Unai and resacking. It's always sad news. Uh, I felt it as a kid when my dad was sacked as a manager. I felt myself when I'm have been sacked previously. There is not one single manager that is sacked that I'm happy with. I always feel the deja vu situation. You know, it's not nice. I know the job. You know, I work. We work hard here. Everyone wants to be successful. Everyone has a work ethic and uh, an idea, and it doesn't always go the way you want it or not. And um, clubs make decisions. We're all in that category, so it's. Um, yeah, it's it's a shame because from the outside looks like a man that gave everything in the role and uh, and he moves on. So there's been a lot of sympathy for Emery in press conference rooms up and down the country, but Vish, it, it was probably time for him to go, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. If only to rid Arsenal of the toxic atmosphere that had developed around them. I know that's been in existence for a while now, but it did it did get the feeling that it was reaching, you know, quite untenable levels really it's, it seemed to impinge on everything that was happening on the field and I don't just mean what happened with Granit Xhaka there was they just looked a bit listless didn't they I think we've spoken bef- before on this podcast about how at the very least you can guarantee that Arsenal would play good football but they weren't even doing that and you know the fact that they were outshot in so many of those games as well under Emery specifically near the end was pretty worrying and yeah I mean you know they weren't outshot by Norwich on the weekend um, with Freddie Lindbergh's first game in charge, but I think it was 15-14 in Arsenal's favour. So it's not exactly like they're, you know, getting rid of Emery's has totally rid of them of that problem. But yeah, it was definitely about time. I'd, I have a l- little bit of sympathy with Emery because evidently he's had to bear the brunt of what's been some pretty bad mismanagement above him. I think there was, um, I can't remember where this was, potentially the Daily Mail that they were talking about how when Emery took the job, there were four people in the room and only and now that only one person remains who was in that room. Yeah. 
which is this is all you need to know about kind of where how quickly they've had to go in a different direction just purely because the people who had that vision in the first place aren't there anymore like you know the case for the defense for emery do we think that that squad and particularly that defense is good enough for the top four i mean if you were to rank every squad in the premier league it it wouldn't be a squad in the top four would it no probably not but then you would have said that before the season about Leicester City's defence, for example, and they're in the top four. I think, I think it's quite often easy to, to, yeah, to kind of judge a squad and say that's not a very good squad, and also to say, you know, we talk earlier about our oh, Leicester City, what a great squad they've got, but it's completely down to yeah how they perform and how a manager galvanises them. And Unai Emery didn't ever figure out a solution for how to pull them all together and and make it work. And also, if you have those weaknesses, if you do have a weak back four, then you should find a way to protect it. He he brought in. Torreira, who I thought was quite impressive when he first arrived in the Premier League and seemed to offer that bit of protection. And, and Arsenal went away from that and never really rediscovered that sec- little security that they thought they did build up after initially. Um, so I think you've, at the end of the day, you've got to put the blame on Emery, uh, which is unfortunate because he is, seems like a nice man and he's obviously had a lot of success in the past. It just wasn't a job that worked for him. I mean, he got a lot wrong at the Emirates. Um, and there are a lot of reasons that kind of didn't work out. Uh, Jack, what would you suggest is is the biggest? I think he just misunderstood the, the fan base somewhat. But then, then again, is that fan base? I don't know. Uh, can they be charmed by by uh, by a manager? I'm not sure. I mean, they're they're so irate, aren't they? Uh, over over anything and everything. And the way um, the the way he sort of introduced some of the academy players, which has been, I think, uh, something that's a long time coming at Arsenal. I think he was on, he was on hiding to nothing, and I think there's an element of what's gone on at Old Trafford since Sir Alex Ferguson left. I think we'll see in, in the aftermath of Emery's departure: is it broken at Arsenal, and do they need a complete rebuild from from the, the top down, or was it was it solely a, a manager in decline? I'm I'm not so sure. I think certainly he had a, a lot of talented players, and you're right, he didn't help himself, Lawrence, with the utilisation of some players like Torreira but I think at, at some point the, the negativity the toxicity around the club it's very difficult to uh, to ride those lows and and come out the other side because you look at a side like Chelsea they, they have had little blips along the way but that negativity at least this season I mean it's certainly been evident in the seasons past at Chelsea as well but this season they the fans have sort of stayed with Lampard and allowed him the time and space to to pick this group up after a couple of sticky patches. I wonder what I, I kind of wonder what Arsenal fans want or what because there's such high expectation around Arsenal and the, what the reality of what you can actually achieve is at that club. Like, can you win the Premier League in the next five years? No, I don't think so. It's, it's a demanding fan base, but I, I do think that they were incredibly patient with Emery at the start, and he 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 was given such a positive reception when he arrived at the club mm. and even deep into that first season it was clear that they were a team with like huge problems and it was a, it was clear that they weren't really a team going anywhere most of the fans stuck with him right up until you know the second season and, and the Europa League final of course which they got absolutely battered in yeah. but I feel like yeah this season fans turned on him but in the first season I don't really think you can criticize their supporters no I think that's fair um I'm not necessarily having a dig at them I just think it's, it, I just think the actual job itself is very difficult. It's a bit like the Everton job where you take it, but where do you go with it? Like Ronald yeah. Koeman, I think took, they finished seventh, got sort of 60 odd points. But like, where do you go once you got to that point? And I think Arsenal have quite often in the last few years have been fourth, fifth, and in that area where actually probably where they should be. 
I suppose Arsenal fans maybe look at a team like Leicester and think, uh, even Chelsea, of course, um, as much as they'd hate to admit it, uh, and think that's kind of what we should be doing right now. But I just think it's a really difficult job, I suppose, is the point I'm making. I think it's such a such high expectations and very difficult to achieve them. Yeah, I also think one of the things that Emery really struggled with was obviously coming after Wenger, a guy who, even with sections of the fan base who who wandered him out by the end, they still recognised the calibre of the manager and the man that he was. But also, I, th- I think he just found it really hard to articulate his vision. Um, and a lot of that comes from the language barrier. I think we were discussing this the other day in the office about, I'm I'm so surprised, as, as someone who's been privy to more press conferences in the last month than I have in you know, the previous few years, football related, I'm staggered at the number of managers who don't use a translator because you know, what you do in a press conference really does matter. You know, as much as you can focus on winning games, it's if you can come up with a decent excuse for yourself, if you can, you know, just do that PR that suggests that what you're actually planning, even if the results don't show it, something bigger, then you're going to buy yourself more time. But we've seen with Kiki Sanchez Flores, we've seen with, you know, Emery as well. Like, one of the the major tells, and Jack, you know, you're a linguist, so you can maybe back me up on this. One of the major tells with Emery about his English was the whole good evening thing. Now, I know it became a bit of a stick to beat him with, but when you, when you learn English as a, you know, as a second or third language or whatever it is, you learn the proper way to speak it, so you end up being more polite, and that opens yourself up to ridicule. And his his use of English was totally fine, but for football, it was kind of too rigid, it was too polite, and it was it was too formal. Yeah. And so he ended up in a situation where he he couldn't really, you know, talk how he wanted to talk or how he would have talked at Valencia. You know, it's one of the things that I was reading about Emery was that he's a really charismatic guy and he's someone who does, you know, who is very well read, really well rounded. And by the end of it, you know, Arsene Wenger's biggest strength was that he was he just be- became this philosopher character, you know. And even after he left Arsenal, you know, there were quotes doing the rounds of him giving speeches and talks, whether it was doing punditry or kind of, you know, shows on the side. Um, and he's obviously done a show in London this week um, as this really articulate, really intelligent bloke to the extent that Arsenal fans are wondering, did we get rid of him a bit too soon? Like, you know, we could really do with someone like that. And Emery was just totally unable to do that. And I don't think we've got the full measure of the man, let alone the manager in his time in England. With, with Emery, one quite interesting point. So... I covered Arsenal last year and was in <laughs> pretty much every Emery press conference, which was often quite painful. But um, when he took the job, I spoke with a journalist from France Football um, to kind of try and understand where things went wrong at Paris Saint-Germain and whether that would happen again and what's, what the French press pack made of him. And one of the complaints about him was that he insisted on speaking French in his press conferences. Didn't have... Uh, an outstanding grasp of the language and would quite often frustrate journalists with kind of boring, you know, press conference lines and didn't give them many stories. And he essentially came to Arsenal and made that exact same mistake. And I don't think, I don't think, you know, the the Arsenal pack played any significant role in him losing his job, but th- there wasn't that much sympathy to him. Um, and I think obviously with Wenger, there was, there was so much sympathy and there was such strong bonds between him and journalists. Was Emery never really built that and never really gave himself an opportunity to build that. Is, is it cynical to suggest it might be a bit of a defence mechanism? Where Yeah, but then do it properly because do you remember when Pochettino arrived yes. at Southampton yeah. and just hid behind his translator and did it at Spurs yeah. with Jesus Perez as well? Yeah, I think you do, You need to get the right balance. I think, as you mentioned, the, the language barrier, barrier, he was completely exasperated after the uh, Frankfurt game. He seemed to 
like you say, use it as a defense mechanism. And just, I remember living abroad initially, you, you just churn out these sort of very generic answers to questions just to survive in, in conversations. And I think he did so after the Frankfurt game, an absolutely awful result. And yet he was just happy enough in English to give an answer that, yeah, I saw the positives. And it was quite clear he didn't see the positives and he knew he was about to be sacked. But I don't know, maybe he wasn't confident enough to to articulate those very raw and those those strong emotions um, in English. And I think you, certainly there is a fine line because if he just does goes down the Pochettino route and solely speaks in, in, in Spanish, then I think he gets... A lot of uh, a lot of stick for not trying, but I think if you get the right balance, and then you you make sure that at, at times of crisis, you you, you have, the message has to be clear rather than rather than worrying about what your image is perceived in the public. Yeah, and it's also, but it's also like a tactical clear message as well, isn't it? Because he had such tactical muddling, and Pochettino is a great example, great obvious comparison, I suppose. Who came over, didn't speak English, but he had a very clear tactical plan at Southampton and it worked very effectively. And he took that to Tottenham and Emery never embedded that. He, you know, despite whatever we talk about the language difficulties, he failed on a tactical basis, I think. I think also, on the kind of defence mechanism thing, I think it works for us. You know, it works for newspaper hacks who sit there and then kind of all get together and, and write the transcript and then have to write a story for that evening. Because if you don't say anything that interesting, we can't then go away and, and make up a quote. But it doesn't really work when, you know, Sky or BT have shoved the camera in your face directly after a game and fans want answers. Fans want to kind of know what you're thinking. That, that's, yeah, that's what I meant really. Like, I think it's more for the fans. It's essentially, you know, you get sacked because of fan pressure. You don't really get sacked because of pressure above you or, or media pressure. I think that's the, the truth of the matter. And if anything, we as the media, we go off the, what the fans do. Like, the results will take us one way. But if there's no pressure on someone getting sacked, you kind of just leave it there. Because otherwise, probably would have jumped on Lampard's back a bit more after losing the first game 4-0 to a pretty underwhelming Manchester United side. But... Yeah, I, I think really it was the especially with those fans and the mouthpiece, the mouthpiece that some of those ha fans have with AFTV and evidently the power of it. I think it could have brought him, maybe not to the end of the season, but certainly a bit more time to turn it around, and, and certainly maybe you know stopped him becoming a bit of a figure of fun. Are there any signs that Freddie Lindbergh could could do an ollie and get the job full time? Do we think, or or is he clearly an, an interim coach? I think you just have to put all your eggs in one basket and that basket is Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. I think he's the best striker at the club. He's arguably the best striker in, in the Premier League since he joined Arsenal. I think you just have to ride his his goals, make sure he, he feels loved and that is essentially one of the reasons why Emery had to go because he was he was unhappy, he was not prepared to sign a new deal and mm. to have a player of, of, of that quality willing to play for Arsenal, I think they were very lucky and fortunate that he... He didn't wait out for another club, um, perhaps a Champions League contender from from Borussia Dortmund. So, I think Arsenal need to to make sure these these sort of players are, are well loved in the club and and build build around them. And if Jumbo can do that, then I think he might have a chance of of building a little bit of momentum and uh, and salvaging this season. Final question: Who should Arsenal be looking at, and what sort of manager do we think they need? Do, do, do they need a kind of young manager in the, in the form of? of Lundberg or do we think that they need somebody a little bit more experienced and Ancelotti or Benito somebody like that if I were Arsenal um, I would wait till January before making the move give Lundberg some time 
to not necessarily kind of impose his you know his ethos but just to shore up a few things just fix a few things here and there and I reckon maybe they should wait and see what Guardiola does in the summer I, th- I personally think that should be that should be the move to them I know Guardiola sometimes enjoys taking a bit of time off after he's you know undertaking a big project but I think there's I, I, I really reckon they can give him the big sell and say like, look come in and from the top town basically do what you did at City but you know we have the infrastructure here just do what they can to try and convince a manager like that because I don't think Ancelotti would be a particularly good fit because I, th- I think the game's just moved on beyond beyond what he can bring and in terms of other big managers out there I don't really see it I don't think Pochettino would be a good idea either I think you know for, for a number of reasons I don't think you'd need that kind of angst if, if you're Arsenal that you avoid any kind of controversy you can between now and the end of the season um, so that that's personally the way I'd play it sounds a bit mad but yeah that's what I reckon I think Allegri would be the best manager that they could get in who's out there at the moment and who's available um, but whether they can persuade him to come whether it feels like an enticing project I don't know um, Arteta's the one I'd really like to see I think it would just be really interesting to see how he gets on lots of people it's quite mixed messages but generally you hear lots of people talk very highly of him um, obviously he's worked under Pep Guardiola so he couldn't have had a much better tutelage he's played under Arsene Wenger so I think it would be really fascinating to see how he gets on and and as much as we kind of criticise the Arsenal setup, there are some building blocks there for a really talented coach like that to work under St. Helly is the kind of he's kind of the director of football so in, in, in a sense you've got that for a coach like that he can just concentrate on his tactical plan which and he may have some masterful tactical plan which my instinct, and I may be wrong, is that Freddie Lundberg probably doesn't quite have to the same extent. So I'd love to see Arteta take the job, but whether that happens or not, I don't know. I think that would be a really interesting appointment. I think Arsenal need like a hands-on coach, someone that, I mean, there's no no surprise to see Brendan Rodgers' name brought up. That would be a really interesting fit. I think somebody of that ilk who has been much maligned, ridiculed, but maybe is a much better coach than most people realise. Maybe Roberto Martinez, very attainable for a club Roberto like Arsenal. I, I think he's he's learnt a lot from some very high-pressured situations. But you need to go on that Arsenal fan TV and say that. <laughs> yeah, I'd get really laughed <laughs> out. But I mean, this is a guy who who has has shown a, a tactical like, depth to his to his managerial game. The way he he sort of handled Belgium, I think, has been really impressive. So he has that that ability to manage big egos and big-time players. I mean, Arsenal need to be ambitious and targeting big players, and Martinez has certainly done so with the likes of Hazard and Lukaku and De Bruyne. So I think, why not? I mean, I don't think they're going to be able to attract a, an Allegri. These, these no. tier one, I mean, hopefully, um, for their sake, you're right, Vish, and they could, they could go and get Guardiola. But I think they are going to need to fall down into that tier two, tier three. I can't wait to tweet this podcast out. <laughs> <laughs> We could bring back Thierry Henry and they could uh, get the double the act dream going, team, yeah. going yeah. again. It'd be yeah. great. Why not? Yeah. They, were, they, were, um, they were two of the um, Amazon pundits together, weren't they? Henry and um, Roberto Martinez. Oh, were they? Yeah, yeah. Get the, get the band back together. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you, gents. Uh, there's just enough time left for a hero and villain of the week. Lawrence, do you have a hero? My hero is Scott McTominay, or as Jose Mourinho called him yesterday, Scott McDominate. Um, which apparently is one of his nicknames. What were his other mi- nicknames? Source, I think. Source. But he um, he he was in the team when they were on a winning run, and then he left the team, and they started losing again. He's come back in the team; they've won again. And I do think he's one of those players, a bit like the Darren Fletcher mould at Man United, where he's maligned for years, but actually might not be as bad as people think he is. And he's 
he got a lot of praise from both Mourinho and Solskjaer, which is quite rare after a game to be praised by two managers. Um, so, yeah, I'm giving it to him. I think he's a an overly unnecessarily maligned player. And Jack, do you have a villain? I was going to say um, Marco Silva, the way he set up at Anfield, but I think the wider picture suggests that Mashiri maybe isn't quite as, I don't know, organised and as clear-cut in his, his ideas in running Everton. And I think they're being mismanaged and undersold in terms of the potential of, of that club. I think they they really are able to sort of punch way above what they're doing right now and they, they should be with a with a proper strategy and a, a proper infrastructure. They should be pushing towards those Champions League spots, especially given the the, the wealth they have, the, the the ability to go and spend big. So I think Mashiri, the, the pressure is on him to, to really sort of turn this, uh, this journey at Everton around. Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week. Um, a quick plug, make sure you tune into the pod next week as it's a German football theme special brought to you from the courtyard by Marriott Suite at Bayern Munich Stadium, the Allianz Arena. Myself, Tony and Miguel will be discussing everything from Jaden Sanchez's future to the revolution currently underway at Bayern. Uh, be sure to follow Indie Football on social media to keep up to date with everything going on. And if you're a new listener, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast or wherever you listen. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.